0: The Ministry of Heresy. That's maybe a little bit of a vague title. There's all types of things we could be talking about here I put underneath regarding the Trinity, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But what does that phrase even mean? The Ministry of Heresy. How can heresy possibly, in any stretch, be ministry? I mean, by the very name, the nature of it, it's it's heresy, it's wrong, it's false, it's not biblical. Have you ever had a situation at work or with a member of the family, or whoever it might be, and they have their theory on various things of how this works, or how that works, or all these other things. I remember in, in high school, we used to have these debates in Bible class back and forth, and they were constantly saying, well, I think this, and I think that, and I think, and I think And our band teacher, who also played tuba among all the other things, he went up quietly to the board because he just slipped into the back. Maybe he heard all the commotion. And he wrote on the board, what I think doesn't matter. I mean, this is with chalk. Most of you don't know what that is. Okay, with chalk, he would write on the board and he would put, what I think doesn't matter, what God thinks matters. Right? But maybe somebody's presented their pet idea of what they think. And you say, that just doesn't sound right. There's something about that that just seems off. Have you ever had that experience? And, you, and they ask you, and maybe they test you on, on it, and they push you a little bit, and you give your best possible answers that you can come up with off the cuff, but you know we don't all have the Bible memorized like Pastor Hyman, so you're left going, uh, 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 uh. And, and so you go home, and you're just you're frustrated. And you think, man, I just really failed you, God. I didn't, I didn't have the answer that I needed. I wasn't able to, you know, be able to, to justify how I believe and so on. When you go home and what do you do? You open up the Bible and you say, I know that verse is here. Let's find that verse. Let's find out what this has to say, what that has to say. And as you continue to search it out, what happens to you? Ministry, could we say? As you start to understand better and more fully... Yes, it is biblical, here it is, here are the verses. And so that's where maybe we get this idea. In fact, it's not my idea, the ministry of heresy. It says in volume five of the testimonies, God will arouse his people. If other means fail, heresies will come in among them which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. The Lord calls upon all who believe his word to awake out of sleep. Precious light has come, appropriate for this time. It is Bible truth showing the perils that are right upon us. The light should lead us to a diligent study of the Scriptures and a most critical examination of the positions which we hold. And so it was actually W.D. Frazee who came up with this expression, as I understand it. Maybe there was somebody before that. The ministry of heresy. This idea of we got to get back and dig into Scripture and see what it has to say. If God can't get our attention in other ways... He allows heresies to come in in hopes that it will wake us up, right? Selected Messages 200 it says, In the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha and of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. You've heard that before. This alpha and the omega. The alpha is this living temple idea, this pantheism. In fact, I think I have a picture here of the book. And there's Dr. Kellogg who got sidetracked on this thing. A lot of leaders, by the way, started adopting his way of thinking. This idea that God is in Everything and eventually it came out that this was not a biblical concept and we don't need to necessarily get sidetracked on that but just a few pages later still in Selected Messages page 203 and 204 it says few can discern the result of entertaining the sophistries advocated by some at this time but the Lord has lifted the curtain and has shown me that the result that would follow talking about the Omega the spiritualistic theories regarding what? the personality of God followed their logical conclusion, sweeping away the whole Christian economy. That's a startling statement. Now, I'm not claiming to know exactly what the Alpha, or sorry, what the Omega is. The Alpha is the A in the, the Greek alphabet, the, the Omega is the, the final letter uh, of the alphabet, and so this, this Omega that's going to come in, we don't know fully what it is, but we have some pretty good hints here. It's spiritualistic theories regarding the personality of God. And so we have various things happening, and we have uh, things, in fact, I've been been thinking about preaching this sermon for, I don't know, well over a year, I think. I did some study on it and had some good notes on it and various things, and uh, a few weeks ago I decided, okay, I guess I'll do that. But there is a group around us that is anti-Trinitarian. Now the Trinity being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and anti means opposed to that idea. And in fact, this group is, is meeting semi-regularly, uh, not far from here. There was a meeting not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, up at Lake Junaluska, and they are talking about how to further promote their agenda, this anti-Trinitarian idea. And so I want to look at that. This is a very basic thing, isn't it? The Trinity. And we may think, is this even really necessary to study out? Because if you are one that is a student of the Word, you see the Trinity all over the place. But what this group does, and I'm not trying to make light of anyone. These are God's children, right? But I don't want people to be led astray in their ideas and their thoughts, and we need to pray for these individuals and these groups. I don't want anybody to be led astray by what they're talking about, and so let's look at, let's define a few things. Anti-Trinitarianism. I'm sure we could go on and on about a lot of things. There's a lot of vignettes, and, and no, we don't take this exactly, but it's more that, and so on and so forth. But in a nutshell, They teach that God the Father is the one true God. That doesn't necessarily sound wrong, but that's void of the Trinity. It's just the one, and it's God the Father. Uh, Jesus is the Son, and oftentimes He's created or begotten, and we'll touch on that today. The Holy Spirit is simply the Spirit of Jesus that can be everywhere, and we won't have time to get into the Holy Spirit today. We'll look at that next time. But that's this anti-Trinitarian idea. They assign different characteristics to the various ones within the Godhead. Some say the Holy Spirit did not come into existence until the day of Pentecost. Is that, in fact, true? Again, we'll look at that more next time. But if you look even in the the Genesis account, the creation of the world, the Holy Spirit is there hovering over the waters, isn't he? We can see how at Jesus' baptism, as he starts his ministry, here's the Son coming to this planet to begin his redemptive work, to live and to die in our behalf right and at his baptism we have the dove descending the holy spirit is there and then the father audibly speaks and says this is my son in whom i am well pleased again the trinity all there there's another group i want to look at the Ari- uh, arian or arianism they teach that there was a time in the past among other things but what i'm going to look at today there was a time in the past that jesus was not so if you take this idea that jesus always was no they say That's not the way it was. At some point in time, Jesus was created. At some point in time, he did not exist. And so that's probably what we're going to look at primarily today. And then there's this semi-Arianism, and that's the idea that Jesus was always in the Father. So there's the eternal aspect of this thing. He's always in the Father, but at some point he proceeded from the Father, became his own being. Now, this is kind of an interesting combination, if you will, too. So now we can deal with the fact that he's always been, but it's been in the Father. And then at some point, he proceeded from the Father, and he became his own. So we're going to look at that idea. Is that biblical? And this was wrestled with by our pioneers long ago, some of these thoughts and ideas. They came through that through more Bible study and so on. What counsel do we have regarding listening to these false theories? When you hear something that you know is wrong, I mean there's plenty of books out there, aren't there? That we know are not right, they're not correct. And so what counsel do we have? Now I urge you, Paul says in Romans 16, 17, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and do what? Avoid them. And I don't think Paul is saying, you know, just don't talk to them. and don't, he, He's not saying to be rude to them, but he's saying don't go and just see everything that they have to say. Don't go listen to them speak. Don't read their, the book in their entirety. In fact, the Living Temple, Ellen White didn't read that book. People say, well, you need to read it so you can refute it. And there's some that do that. They do a careful reading, but that's, that's a pretty rough thing to have to do to wade through some of those things. And as soon as she knew that it was not right, she says, I'm not going to read this. And her son actually sat down and read parts of it, and when she was convinced, yes, this is not right, they put it aside. And she put it aside. But it's a dangerous thing to always be collecting and gathering all these erroneous ideas and sit at their feet. Rather, as soon as you hear that something is not right, is not truth, and contradictory to scripture, avoid it. Put it aside. That's the counsel that we have. Here in in, the Loma Linda Messages, a rather obscure statement. It was never published in her her day. It was a letter to an individual, but Ellen White's writing here, those who seek to define God are on forbidden ground. Have you heard that before? Oftentimes that is the catchphrase for don't even touch the subject. Don't talk about God. Don't talk about his character, his nature, any of those things. You're on forbidden ground. Now I honestly don't think that's what she is trying to say here because we have plenty of other statements that say it is everything, the nature of Christ is everything to us and it's a rich field which we should study and understand. But still there's a point to be made here too. We are to enter into no controversy regarding God, what he is and what he is not. He, the omniscient one, is above discussion. Those who express such sentiments regarding him show that they are departing from the faith. To me I take this to mean if we are going to try to dissect the molecules of God and say that we can fully explain God, we're on dangerous ground, right? There are aspects of God that you and I will never understand. We can think that we know eternity past and eternity future, but we really honestly can't understand that. Everything that we know has a beginning and has an end. And God never had a beginning. He never was created. He's always, always, always forever and ever and ever. And once you get to forever, you keep going forever and forever. We can't, we can't get that, can we? And so there are elements of God that, yes, we just have to re- realize and recognize God is so big that I can't define him. I can't put him in a small box, right? Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine offers us this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are certain things that he has not revealed to us. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so there are things about God's nature and his character that are revealed to us. And I do think it's a fruitful field to look at some of these things that are revealed, but still with an element of humility saying we can't fully define who God is, but we can at least understand what he's given to us if we study it out. Does that make sense? And so we need to find that balance, I think. Uh, This is just an anonymous quote here. When I were I able to fully set forth God, I should either be a God myself or God himself would cease to be God. That's a pretty profound statement. It's saying if I can fully divine God, define God, then I would be a God because my intellect would be so high that I'd be able to do that. Or God would cease to be God because now, well, I'm God too. Anyway, we'll move on. let's look at the Arian view. Was there a time that Jesus was not? That's the teaching that they often will will look at. Is there a time that Jesus was not? Well, let's look at that here. Uh, We also want to look at what about the semi-Arian view that Jesus was always in the father and at some point proceeded from the father and became his own being. And I think we can kind of deal with both of these at the same time. The first passage I want to look at is in Hebrews chapter one. We'll look at the first four verses there. It says, God, who at various times and in his various ways spoke in time past to the fathers of the prophets, he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So, who made the worlds? Jesus. Wow, that's a profound thought, especially to the Jewish mind that's still trying to understand this idea of Jesus. Here, Paul, I believe the author here, is saying, Jesus made the world. We continue on. Who being the brightness of his glory. Notice it doesn't say who has become, right? Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins. Now going back to the expressed image of his person. How can you be an expressed image of a person if you are not God yourself? Does that make sense? How can God's just send a representative and say, this is like me, this is good enough. No, it has to be a God, has to be God, sent in the flesh to the expressed image of the person, continuing on the verse, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let me ask you a simple question. Which of the angels is worthy to be worshipped? We have examples in Scripture where People think that something needs to be worshipped here, and they bow down, and the angel says what? Don't worship me. I'm not worthy. Only God is worthy to be worshipped. If the Son is not worthy to be worshipped, and only God is worthy to be worshipped, then Jesus is not a lesser God to the Father. He is God. Listen to the words of God himself, skipping down to verse 8. But to the Son, he, God the Father, says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You know that's a direct quotation. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Taken from Psalm 45, verse 6. And this is just one of seven examples where the New Testament authors attribute the God of the Old Testament to Jesus. Now, again, to the Jewish mind, this is radical. You're telling me that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus? Are you sure? Psalm 45, 6, that refers to God. Yes, that is Jesus, who created the world. That is Jesus. Continuing Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the world, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Speaking of Jesus here. And here, Lord, is the Lord of the Old Testament. This is Yahweh, translated as the Lord, or Jehovah, is being connected with Jesus. So Jesus proceeded, so did Jesus, I want to ask, did he proceed from the Father? It sure doesn't sound like it to me. sounds to me like he's always been. He's the creator. He's the God throughout the Old Testament. When you get to Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus' priesthood is compared to that of Melchizedek. You remember him from from Genesis? Now there was the earthly sanctuary, but in the book of Hebrews, Paul is showing that Christ is better. It's kind of a theme throughout the book. In chapter one, Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter two, Jesus is better than man. By the time you get to chapter seven, you see that the priesthood of Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood because those priests had a beginning and they had an end. In fact, let's read it here. Hebrews 7, Verse 1, for this Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. What is that saying? So in Melchizedek, Paul uses an allegory or a symbolic speaking or illustration to say, look, we have no record of Melchizedek's beginning we have no record of his ending because he is symbolic of Jesus who has no beginning or ending. He has existed throughout eternity. So please don't tell me that he proceeded forth from the body of the Father in some distant point in the past and say that this is the beginning point of everlasting. No, he did not. Jesus had either beginning of days nor end of life. What about the book of Revelation? we studied chapter 1. About a week and a half ago, Pastor Hyman took us through that. In verse 17 of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. In Revelation 12 to 17, we have the vision of Jesus as the glorified high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And Jesus says to the fearful, fainting prophet, after that whole description of Jesus, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Here, John is quoting Isaiah 44, verse 6, that says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. What are we to make of these words coming out of the mouth of Jesus? Here again is another bold statement that Jesus is the Lord, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus is the first and the last. In fact, this sounds very much like how God is described. Going back to Revelation chapter 1, this time in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who will see to be God the Father who is and who was and who is to come. Doesn't that sound a lot like first and last? And from the seven spirits, don't get hung up with seven, that's simply is symbolic of perfection or completeness, that's the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So here you have the Godhead again, but now it's God the Father who is now described, who is and who was and who is to come. Then in verse 8, God the Father is saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here we have similar references, similar titles to the Yahweh of the Old Testament when applied to both the Father and the Son in the book of Revelation. You go to the end of the book and you read this, and behold, I am coming quickly. Who's coming quickly? Jesus is coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so here Jesus is coming, and this is how he is described. Both the Father and the Son are the Alpha and the Omega. Both the Father and the Son are the first and the last. Both the Father and the Son are the beginning and the end. Both the Father and the Son are equal in their divine nature. We could ask the question, what did Jesus say about himself in this regard when he was here walking among us? Well, John 8, 58, Jesus said to them when he was in this argument back, back and forth as they were testing him, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Here, scholars unanimously agree that Jesus is referring to Exodus three fourteen and applying it not to God the Father, but to himself. Exodus 3.14, and God said to Moses, I am whom I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So it is Jesus who is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the verse continues, verse 15 in Exodus. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. For Jesus to refer to himself by quoting these verses to me is compelling evidence of his full divinity. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is most obviously claiming to be none other than the God of the Exodus, the Lord Yahweh. Friends, you might want to take note as well, well, did Jesus' audience recognize the gravity of these claims, or are you just making these things up? Well, you just read the next verse, and they took up stones to throw at him. They most certainly did realize what claim he was making, and they were certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is blasphemy. Why? Because they didn't believe he was God. Not the God he was claiming to be, and so they wanted to stone him. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't say, I was, but he said, I am, in the absolute sense. He's claiming eternal existence. Spirit of Prophecy tells us, I am means an eternal presence. Eternal. It's not from some starting point. It's not from creation. It's not from delivering the, the children of Israel from the hands of Pharaoh. It's from everlasting to everlasting, Friends, for Jesus to make such a radical claim about himself, he was either one of three things. One, deranged. Two, one of the most blasphemous persons in history. Or three, the eternally existing God he claimed to be. Before Abraham was, I am. Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent son of God. Isn't that plain? If he is self-existent, that he did not proceed from the Father, but exists from his own accord. Yes, but what about Proverbs 8, which states, Christ was brought forth. Sometimes you hear that being asked. Well, Proverbs 8, 24 and 25 is oftentimes their go-to reference for this. And it says, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. And when there were no fountains abounding with water before the mountains were settled before the hills, I was brought forth. Forth. Arians interpret this as Jesus being created. But it can also be translated, and some versions say created, but it can be translated as it is here, brought forth or possessed for a special mission of blessing to the world. Was Jesus not brought forth to our rebellious world to more fully manifest the character of God? And further, can a created being show us a true picture of the character of God? I mean, is that how it works? If you want someone to be convinced of an individual's character, you send a representative? No, you have to send the actual thing, or person, I should better say, God. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God is what talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Now, let's think about this. If Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and if God created God, then before he created, well, God created Jesus, let me be more specific, If Christ is the power and the wisdom, then there must not have been power or wisdom before he created Jesus. Does that make sense? Did wisdom originate with Jesus, or has God's wisdom always been because Jesus has always been? Has God's power always been because God has always been? To suggest that there was a time when God lacked wisdom, honestly, is a bit absurd. Another quote from Signs of the Times. And speaking of his preexistence, Christ carries the mind back through the dateless ages. He assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. This is a commentary on the Proverbs verse we just read. And she says there never was a time that they were not in close fellowship. And so he came forth to reveal to us on this planet what God is all about. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You would think if he was created or if he changed forms, that verse would have to be cut out. Jesus is better and improving and is more fully present than he ever was when God created. I mean, that's not what it says. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is an interesting logic that I came across that I really like. Should we base our theories and ideas on a single Bible verse? Hopefully, you know the answer to that to be no, right? Uh, it says here in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, By the mouth of how many? Two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So, if we're going to establish the word of God, we need to have two or three witnesses, not just one verse. Because that's the kind of void of context, that's void of the larger picture. And so, anytime a theology is being based on one verse, that's a, a scary, dangerous thing, right? And in fact, it's the same in our own courts of law. If I come in and and rob you in your house, and they bring me in, and and you say, He did it, and I say, No, I didn't, how far are we? Not very far. Sometimes, in a relational context, we'll say, This is a case of he said, she said, right? Well, who's telling us the truth? Well, we don't know, because their stories are contradicting each other. But if I can get two or three witnesses, And so we have plenty of examples of that in the Old Testament where God is giving directives. You have to have so many witnesses before this person is put to death for this thing and for that thing, and we could put a lot of those up on the screen. But what I find interesting is if we go down a few verses to the conclusion of 2 Corinthians, here still in chapter 13, we're here in verse 1 where it says, two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. In verse 14 it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now think about that in the chapter the same or in the context of the same chapter we just read two or three witnesses. If there were only the father, would you have two or three witnesses? No, there would only be one. But it says by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word is to be established. Now if you think about it, if we have a trinity, we always have two witnesses that are able to bear testimony of the other, don't we? All the way around, two witnesses bearing witness to the other. That's why we need three. Trinity. But if we just have two, some people like getting rid of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. Some people say Jesus is, is more just a, a presence from God. We, we get rid of this idea of two or three witnesses, and therefore credibility is lost. How about this? Doesn't John 3.16 talk about Jesus as the only begotten Son? I mean, right there, He's begotten. Well, some say this is proof that God made man in His image. And just as Eve was brought forth from a rib from the side of Adam, they say Jesus was brought forth out of the Father. And they try and make all these comparisons. Well, first of all, Adam and Eve are male and female. So already this analogy is starting to break down. Secondly, Adam and Eve are husband and wife. But we have the Father and Jesus described as Father and Son. So it's breaking down further. Thirdly, it was Mary who bore Jesus in a divine way. So it really doesn't make sense that Jesus was begotten from the Father And then you have to wonder, well, then who is the mother of Jesus in this? I mean, it just gets, it breaks down. It doesn't really fit. And if we just take the word begotten, you've heard this before, the word is monogenes. It's a rather simple word. And if you break it down, mono means only or solo or one. And genes is where we get the, the word genus from. If you're studying biology or all those kinds of things, it means category or type. And so we have one type, only type only kind. We could even say one of a kind, right? In fact, there's other words that could have been used to mean actually begotten in the sense of having children, and those words are not the ones that are used here in this gospel. It's monogenes, one of a kind. I have four kids, and let me tell you, all four of them are one of a kind. There's not one that's alike, and if I could have a thousand kids, they'd all be one of a kind, wouldn't they? And here God is saying, for I so love the world, or for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten, his one-of-a-kind son. Wasn't that the case? He is the only one that the father could have sent to accomplish the plan of redemption. When the father sent his son, he sent his very best. He is one-of-a-kind. Well, what about the biblical expression, father and son? Well, there you go. That should settle it, shouldn't it? Well, let's look at that. Three possible answers to that, Uh, but there are literally more than that, scores more than that. But anyway, in scores of places, son indicates a person or groups distinguishing character. And we have some examples of that, sons of Zion, sons of God, the inverse of your father, the devil, all these kinds of things are distinguishing a person or a group's distinguishing character. And literally, we could list hundreds of these examples, okay? And so that's one possible use of father-son language. Another possible answer, the imagery of father also denotes the intimacy of the relationship, right? Right? See, in the latter part of John chapter 17 is probably the best example where Jesus is pouring out his heart to his father. But then a third possible answer is also a claim of equality. I should have a number three there, but I forgot to put it in. It says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working, it says in John 15, or 517, excuse me. And what was the response? When he had said this, the people responded, saying Jesus was making himself what? Equal with God. That's how they understood it. You're saying you're equal by claiming him as your father and you being the son. And so we don't need to get tangled up in some of this terminology thinking one was before and begat the other. This just doesn't bear out in scripture. What about Colossians 1, 15 and 18 that describes Jesus as the firstborn? Aha, there it is. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Let's look at it. Here is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. That are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is, oh, there it is, before all things. But let's just pretend that's not there. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So does this verse prove the Father begat or created the Son? Well, first off, let it be said that one cannot be born and created at the same time. Is it true? We also must understand that there is a biblical definition of firstborn that can indicate the position of privilege, honor, or dignity without being firstborn. You're just trying to get this point across that there is privilege, honor, or dignity. Well, can you show me a biblical example? I'm glad you asked. David is an example, I have found my servant David with my holy oil, I have anointed him in the 20th verse of Psalm 89. Then you skip down to the 27th verse, it says, also I will make him my, what? Firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, David wasn't the firstborn, he was the one out in the pasture. They didn't even consider him, did they? He was too young he was just a lad and Jesus says I'm going to make him firstborn I'm going to make him honored of preeminence I'm going to call him my firstborn another example Hebrews 12:23 to the general assembly and the church Of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Does that mean you had to be a firstborn to go to heaven? All those middle children, you really are in bad shape. The youngest aren't going to be as spoiled as they have gotten accustomed. In fact, of the eight times in the New Testament that firstborn is mentioned, eight times in the New Testament, only two indicate an actual placement of birth order. That leaves six other times that show and indicate position, privilege, honor, and dignity. Though again, this is not the idea of Jesus is born and begat. He was the first one that was born and begat, and they'd trail off and all these things. This is the verse Elizabeth read. She said, can I sing it? I said, if you want to. For unto us a child is born. Who's that? Jesus, right? We, We read this at Christmas time all the time. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called. I always think of Sandy Patty for this next part. Wonderful the counselor the mighty god the everlasting father prince of peace wait a second the mighty god the everlasting father that's jesus friends clearly jesus is god he's described as the everlasting father but we don't say jesus is the father yes jesus says i and my father are one but that doesn't mean that jesus is the same being as the father Just like that banana illustration. Thank you, Sue. We're never going to eat a banana the same way again. She was trying to describe it to me. She says, well, all the pieces go into three. Well, okay, yeah, if you peel it, you have three pieces. She says, no, the actual banana is in three pieces. I said, what? Check it out. Jesus is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one and only special and unique way who was sent in a divine way. And there has never been a time he was not in close fellowship with the Father. This is a picture of M.L. Andreasen, leader in our church, and he believed that Jesus was begotten of the Father. That was one of his beliefs. In fact, other, many other founders did as well. And then in 1898, when Ellen Wright wrote Desire of Ages, he came aqua- across this quote, and he questioned, did she really write that? And here's the quote, In Christ is life original, unborrowed, and underived." It's right there let me put the quotation 530 he that hath the son hath life quoting first john 5:12. the divinity of christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life but it was that statement original unborrowed underived. he said did she in fact really write that and so he asked and requested can i see the original manuscript well sure and so they found it dug it out there sure enough it was in Al white's handwriting and so then he he requested to to sit down with her wouldn't that be neat Mrs. White, would you just have a few minutes that I could sit down? I have some questions. And so he did. And in a private interview, Ellen White addressed, yes, this is what God revealed to me. This is what I believe. And I wrote these words. She confirmed it to be, in her view, the truth. And this was the turning point for M.L. Andreasen to give up his anti-Trinitarian and semi-Aryan views and say, okay, God always was. Jesus always was. The Holy Spirit always was. And sometimes we can get caught up in those little nuances of things, those little quotes. And I've spent a lot of time talking about the the more challenging quotations they bring up, but there's all kinds. If you start looking in your study, the Trinity's everywhere. And it's not that one is a presence and one's a cloud and one's this and one's that. No, it's the three persons of the Godhead. And we'll look at that more next time. If you have some doubts about that, come next time. And we'll talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. I'll show you a quotation where it says, The Holy Spirit is just as much a person of the Godhead as God the Father. But sometimes we get crossed up in some of these kinds of things. But the Godhead was stirred. I love this in Councils on Health. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. They've all been in existence together from the very beginning. I mean, if that hadn't been the case, what would that mean for Jesus coming to this planet? If God the Father could say, oh, this looks like a problem, I'm going to create something to go take care of it. Doesn't that diminish what was done for us on Calvary? As opposed to one of the Trinity, one of the three of the Godhead decides I'm gonna come in the flesh and I will give myself a sacrifice for lost humanity. And how can this person, Jesus Christ, give immortality, how can he give eternal life if he didn't possess it himself? It just doesn't fit, it doesn't work. And in the whole great controversy theme, if it's the devil saying, God, you're not fair, you're not just, you're not true. If the challenge is with God, how can just some lesser God take care of it? No, God has to take care of it, and God did take care of it. And so we are blessed that we have the Father, and we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit working out the plan of redemption, each of them having a role, each of them being united in purpose to get you and I home and to get the, plan, the, the, the mess of sin eradicated once and for all. And so I praise the Lord for his word, for the things that he has given to us for us to understand of who he is. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, that you have been forever and for always, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that this three-person Godhead is working in our behalf to get us home. Lord, we thank you for God the Father. We thank you for Jesus the Son. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that ministers to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.